0: Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Chris walks us through our second commitment in our partnership series, where we take a look at why it's important to take next steps. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Chris.
1: Hey, I hope you're doing well this morning. Glad that you're with us. If this is your first time here at South Harbor, welcome. Uh, My name is Chris Thompson. I am the Harbor Students Pastor here. Uh, It's my privilege to get to work with students uh, middle school through high school, and so if you are a middle school through high school student, I would love to get to know you. Come and find me after service. If you're a parent and want to know more about uh, what happens here, come and find me. Would love to talk to you about that. And if you're just new, I just love meeting new people. That's the extrovert that I am, so Uh, I'd love to talk with you as well. I'm really excited uh, to be in the series that we are in called Why Church Matters. Uh, For many of us, this is a question that we've probably asked at some point in our lives, Uh, maybe asking that this morning or maybe uh, we'll ask someday, and we hope that this series is helping lay the groundwork for you for why church matters because I know this is a question that I've asked uh, in my own life. When I was leaving high school, this was a question I think, as most high school students have this question of why does church matter? Uh, for me, when I was leaving high school, all of my friends graduated at the same time I did, that I was friends with, and they all went off somewhere else to school. And I did not. I stayed at home and I went to the community college. And so I was kind of in this weird vacuum of like friendships. All of my friends who were in school had left uh, and were at my church had left, and church just kind of became this place where it was like, Me and my parents, and as great as my parents are, like, I was 18 and didn't want to spend all of my time with my parents, and the church kind of became my parents' church, and I floated for a while, and I was really into hunting, and so, like, fall time came, and I said, why should I be in church when I could be in a tree stand somewhere on a Sunday morning or resting from being in a tree stand on Sunday morning, right? Like, these are the questions that I asked when I was getting out of school, and There's a whole bunch of other hard things that happened in that time that made that question even more pertinent of why does church matter? I'm sure some of you have seen people over the course of this past season ask this question, whether uh, inside of themselves or externally, right? We all had friends that after this past season of COVID and craziness that happened have stepped away from the church because they answered the question of why does church matter, Well, maybe it doesn't, right? Or or it's easier for us just to stay home and not be in community with others. Or I can get my teaching some other place and we miss the deeper understanding of what church really is. And so we've answered these questions in a whole bunch of different ways. And maybe you're here this morning and you are a high school or a middle school student who you're asking that question of why does church matter when there's a ton of different things that I could do on a Sunday and throughout the week. Uh, You may be somebody in this room who has just moved here and are checking out churches for the first time and you left a community that was really good for you and now you're starting to ask that question. I don't know if I'll be able to find a community like that again. And so why does church matter to me when I might be able to find friendship other places? You may be dating someone who is less interested in church and they are really interested in going out for a great Sunday brunch at Anna's house instead of being in community somewhere, right? Like why does church matter when the person I really like is somewhere else? Or maybe you're here for the first time this morning because somebody asked you to come, and you see that church is really important to them, and faith is really important to them, and you're asking this question, why does church matter so much to them, and should it matter that much to me? This is why this series exists. So if you would, in the seat back in front of you, there's a card uh, that looks like this. It says partnership commitments on here. This is basically our outline for this series. Uh, last week, Tim talked about the I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead uh, and to be my Savior and confess that, that my commitment to Him as a Lordship over my life. That was commitment number one. If you want to listen to that, you can go back and listen to Tim's sermons last week. Uh, we'll t- tackle a little bit more of that because it's really important to understand that. To understand commitment number two that we're talking about this morning, the I commit to take next steps to become more like Jesus and help others do the same. Uh, this is our partnership card. If you got one of these on your way in, this might be really good material if I bore you while you're up here. It's got lots of pictures. So I've tried to put a lot of pictures into the teaching this morning to keep you engaged, but there's some really good ones in here. And they go more in depth about all of the commitments because at the end of this series, we're going to ask, do you want to partner with us? And we use that language really intently uh, around partnership because we believe that being a part of this community is active. We believe it's something that you buy into, that you're engaged with, that you're volunteering to be a part of, that you're taking next steps in. And it's not just a membership uh, to go somewhere and be a part of something or have a spa day at a country club or something, right? Like it's something more than that that we're asking you to be a part of. And so that's why we take this language of partnership really, really seriously. So let's dive in this morning. Uh, I wanna be a little bit interactive with you this morning. And so I'm gonna put a phrase on the screen it says, I am a rock. I want you to say that with me, okay? It's going to be a little weird, but just say it with me. I am a rock. Turn to your neighbor and say to them, I am, I am a rock. Right? What we didn't say is that you are the rock. No one can be the rock. He's one of a kind, right? I'm also not calling you dull or dense or boring, none of that stuff. Uh, but saying that I am a rock is really important for what we're going to talk about in the passage of Scripture we're going to talk about this morning. And so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you. Uh, if you have a, a paper version of it, that's great. If you don't, uh, turn in your phone with me, or we'll have the scripture on the screen for you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, this is a, a passage you've probably heard before. Um, it's the passage where Jesus and his disciples show up at a place called Caesarea Philippi, this place in northern Israel. So I wanna read through the story first and then we'll dive into different parts of it. So uh, hear these words from the scriptures this morning. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you, But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Um, All right, let's get started with some context, shall we? Uh, It's really important to understand where we've been in a story in order to understand why this moment where Peter says for the first time that Jesus is the Messiah is so incredibly important. And to do this, I want to take everyone's favorite story, or maybe just mine, The Hobbit, Is anybody, any Hobbit fans in the house? Okay, okay, all right. This was, I'm getting a head shake now, so just bear with me. Uh, This is my favorite story. It's a story that my dad read to me when I was a kid and that I read every so often. And so uh, just entertain me as I show you a picture of two very important characters from The Hobbit, okay? If you've never seen this movie, this makes zero sense to you. Uh, It looks like a really scary, pale, frail thing. Uh, And this guy that's looking in like sheer astonishment at what he's looking at here, right? The person on the left's name is Bilbo. The person on the right's name is Gollum or Smeagol. He's got two different personalities that live inside of him. Crazy story. You should go and watch it. But to understand why this moment is really important, you have to understand the rest of the story for how he got here. Because if I showed this to you, you would be like, this makes zero sense to me. Why should I care about these two people that look like they're in a cave somewhere, uh, mesmerized by each other, right? Here's how the story starts. In the beginning of this story, starts in the Shire, this magnificent land of hobbits where a, a wizard shows up. His name is Gandalf the Grey. He is a really important wizard in this world who has a mission that he's going to ask his dear friend Bilbo, who is in that first picture, to go on. He is going to ask him to be a burglar, to go with a group of dwarves across the land to steal a gemstone to take back their homeland, Right? And so Bilbo gets his contract. He has this dinner with all of these dwarves who also magnificently showed up at their house. And he's like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Hobbits don't leave home. They are content creatures. They don't like adventure. But he wakes up in the morning and he says, you know what? That's not the sort of hobbit that I wanna be. I want to be a hobbit that's remembered. I want to go on a grand adventure. I want to run after them with my contract that I've signed and catch up with them somewhere along the road and join with them on their magnificent quest to take back their homeland. So he catches up to them. They have this moment where they, some trolls turn to stone. They start traveling through the mountains, and there's these mountain giants who are throwing stones at each other, and they have to take refuge in a cave. In the middle of the night, this cave, what they find out is it is actually an entrance to a goblin lair. Ooh, scary. Uh, so next slide is all these goblins. Uh, they get into this big battle with all of these goblins in this mountain because they couldn't go back outside and they thought it would be faster to travel through the mountain and they end up in this magnificent battle uh, and at one point Bilbo gets knocked off of the path and falls down to the bottom of the cavern where he stumbles across the one ring of power, Right, this magnificent ring that if somebody wears it, they could, well, if the, if the main bad guy, too much, too much backstory, it's a really powerful ring. I don't want to bore you too much with it. I've already gotten enough head shakes. So he finds this ring of power, and he puts it in his pocket. He doesn't know what it does, and he starts going through, and he hears this creature scream that he's missing his precious, which you find out is this ring of power, which brings us to this moment where now what they're doing is they are having a riddle off. Which is a crazy word. If you think about a rap battle, this is what they were doing in Tolkien's world. They were giving each other riddles and if Bilbo could stump Gollum, he would be able to go free because Gollum looks at him and he's like, hey, I wanna eat you because you look tasty. That's what he's looking at him like, right? So it's this pivotal moment in the story where if Bilbo loses, the rest of the story doesn't happen, right? The rest of the Lord of the Rings series doesn't happen. Like This is a super pivotal moment in this story where if Bilbo loses and Gollum wins, the story is over. And so in order to understand really important moments and stories, you have to understand the context that got us to this point. The same is true for the story that we looked at this morning with Jesus, where, where Peter says, uh, where Peter declares that he is the Messiah for the first time. And while Jesus' story doesn't have any wizards or goblins or riddle battles, it does have some really key moments that we have to understand that get us to this point. Let me show you the story of Jesus and his disciples. In the beginning. Jesus was born in Bethlehem with all of the sheep and the camels and the horses and the wise men and the shepherds. All of the things happened in this beginning point. This is the moment that God had promised that the Messiah was going to come. Along the way though, King Herod at the time finds out that there is a new king that's gonna be born. And in his mind, he says, wait a minute, I'm king. That doesn't make sense that there's a new king. I haven't had a child. My wives or concubines haven't had a child. What is going on here? And so he puts out a decree that all of the young children have to be all of the young men have to be killed under the age of two or so. Uh, from that point, Jesus and his family, because they hear this, have to flee to Egypt. Uh, apparently, the only way we know it's Egypt is by the pyramids in the background from this picture. So that's pretty cool. Uh, so Jesus flees with his family to Egypt, where uh, he lives for a period of time until King Herod passes and nobody remembers this decree anymore and then it's safe for him to come back with his family. Now, there's not a lot of stories about Jesus' younger life other than his parents leaving him in Jerusalem, which none of us good parents have ever done with our kids, leaving them anywhere behind at a park or anything like that. I haven't done that. Uh, (laughs) So uh, anyways, so they they come back. They have this moment where he leaves them at the Temple Mount. Uh, And then Jesus begins his ministry. He's baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, which is kind of symbolizing the beginning of his kingdom work. After this, he goes into the desert and is tempted by the devil where he is, and in case you didn't know, you need to see Jesus in the bottom corner to know that that's Jesus, uh, where he's tempted to turn rocks into bread, uh, where he's tempted to throw himself off of a tower and the angels will save him. All of these things he is tempted to do. Shortly after this, once he's kind of gotten through this, he goes and he calls his first disciples, of which Simon Peter is one of them. And they begin to watch a series of events of Jesus healing people, of him, uh, of him healing, the, healing the blind, healing the lame, healing uh, the sick. At one point, he raises someone from the dead, which is my daughter's favorite story, the story that she calls Jesus and the sick girl from her Bible story. He does all of these incredible things, and all the while he is gaining a ton of popularity. Every single time we see this, we see crowds of people gathering around Jesus in magnitudes and, and tons of people. So much so that he is starting to make both friends and he's starting to make enemies. Because all of these people that are coming to want to be healed and to be fed and to be made well, and yet on the other side of that, all of the religious leaders are like, whoa, hold on a second. Something's not right here. This is not okay. He's upending everything that we stand for. We want him dead. And just before this, he catches wind of it and he travels across the Sea of Galilee by boat with his disciples to the other side and starts to head north. And so Jesus and his friends start to take a field trip of sorts, about 25 to 30 miles uh, north of where they normally reside in the Sea of Galilee. It's about a day or two walk before they end up in this place called Caesarea, Philippi. Now, if you want to deep dive into what Caesarea Philippi is, we'll talk about it slightly this morning. There's a ton more that we could talk about. It's not the main point of the story. I just want to say enough to lay the groundwork for why that place is important and why Jesus goes there. Tim had a message about it probably a year and a half ago in our Matthew series. Uh, You can go back and and check it out there. You can look it up online and and through the podcast. So Jesus and his friends take a a field trip north to Caesarea Philippi, uh, which is up there. Uh, by the arrow to the north from the Sea of Galilee. They normally in the south there did a ton of their ministry there or in uh, Jerusalem area, but they're going north. Uh, They're headed north. The city of Caesarea Philippi or Benaeus that's there is kind of set in between two major places. On the west coast, you can see the land of Tyre, uh, which is a major port city. It's It's a huge place of commerce, trade, news from the world. A ton of things go in and out of Tyre. And off the screen to the east, uh, there's a land called Damascus. You've probably heard of Damascus before. Uh, it is a, it's built around an oasis, if you didn't know that, both in the old days and now it's built around an oasis, which is why it's in the middle of the desert. And there's a major road that connects the two of those. And in the middle is Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus and his disciples know that Caesarea Philippi is here. But in the back of their minds, they never would have been thinking, we're gonna go to Caesarea Philippi just for a little holiday, just to get away from the Sea of Galilee, just wait for this whole like series of events to blow over so that we're not wanted and we won't be put to death. Uh, no God-fearing Jew of the day would have stayed in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi uh, in the ancient world was also called Paneas or Benaeus. The reason it was called that is because in this area, there was the worship of a God named Pan that would happen. Uh... Pan is this uh, half goat, half man, right? You can tell that. Uh, He's got like a flute there. He loves music. He's got like a barrel of wine on tap that's obviously overflowing onto the floor there. Pan is like this crazy half goat, half man, Greek God who loves a good time, loves chaos, loves all sorts of debauchery, all of these crazy things Pan is known for. And people came to Caesarea Philippi or Peneus to worship this God, Pan. Uh, in this place, uh, Caesarea Philippi, it was believed that this was also the gates of Haiti, which is why Jesus says that in this passage. They believed uh, that where the river came out of the mountain, that this is where the gods in the wintertime would go, the fertility gods would go and hide away for the winter because crops weren't growing, all of these things, they would go and they would hide away. And it was their job there in Caesarea Philippi to like entice Pan to come back out to spread his goat legs and live in the world again, right? To live among them, to to bless their land, to do whatever it is that Pan does. This is what they were asking of. He would would ask a few things of his worshipers there at Caesarea Philippi. He would ask them to do all sorts of terrible things that would include prostitution, debauchery, uh, things with goats that are unspeakable. He would ask for child sacrifices, throwing your firstborn into Uh, the cave in order to entice him to come back out again. And so any God-fearing Jew that's going through this area would have had to have gone through to go either direction, but wouldn't have stopped in that area. And so you have to put yourself in the disciples' shoes, or sandals rather, as they're walking through this area. And Jesus just like sits down on a stump in Caesarea Philippi, like takes his sandals off, starts rubbing his feet after a long journey, You have to imagine them asking like, this isn't gonna, we're not stopping here, are we? Like what, we can't stop here. You know what would happen if we stopped here. Like look at everything that's happening just right out in the open. We can't stop here, can we, Jesus? You're not gonna make us stay here for a long period of time because this is literally the place where people come and are knocking on the doors of hell. However, Jesus purposefully brought his disciples here To embed within their hearts the truth of who he was. They had been walking with him for years at this point. They had seen the miracles. They had heard the stories he had told. And this was his moment to kind of embed in their hearts who he truly was and what the mission of his church would be and the astounding power that his church would have throughout the world and over evil. So Jesus stops, and with his disciples there, he asks them a question. And after their eyes have seen in plain sight everything that was mentioned before them, he says these words in verse 13. He says, when Jesus came out of the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he turns his question to them. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This statement is Peter committing to our step number one from the partnership card. To say that I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, he obviously didn't say that yet, but that he confesses that Jesus is Lord and Savior and commits his life to the lordship to, to allow Jesus to have lordship over his life. This is step number one. This is why we said last week that's the most important thing that we can do in life. This is a big deal for Peter to say this. It's a big deal for him to claim that somebody is the Messiah. It's a big deal for him to say that anybody has lordship over his life in that sort of way because two things for two reasons. One, saying that Jesus was the Messiah goes against every type of Messiah that the people of Israel thought would be coming. And number two, that this immediately puts him in danger of either being killed by religious rulers or ending up dead for some other reason because he named somebody as a Messiah. Why do we know this? Because he wasn't the first one to pronounce somebody as a Messiah. Jesus wasn't the first person that somebody pronounced as a Messiah from the ancient Jewish world. The ancient historian Josephus writes about a few of these people whom had been declared messiahs before Jesus. And I want you to pay attention to all of them and see if there's any common threads through their story. The first one was Judas, son of Hezekiah. Around 4 BC, Judas, which is just before when Jesus was born, uh, in the confusion after the death of Herod the Great, this Judas, who, call, who Josephus calls head of the robbers, assaulted the royal palace in the new city uh, of Sepphoris in Galilee, not far from where Jesus' hometown of Nazareth was. Uh, He sees weapons and brought people along with him. He raided the armory and he started to conquer and taking all of this money and terrorizing the countryside. And Josephus also says that he had an ambitious desire to become a royal dignitary. Though whether he actually declared himself a kingly messiah or somebody else did, somewhere, sometime along his journey, he was declared as a messiah Uh, along the way. And it's not clear what happened to him, but the Roman governor of Syria at the time later marched south, hearing that this sort of revolt was happening. And it says that he put down a number of uprisings in this year. So it's likely that he and his band were killed in some way, shape, or form by the Romans. Okay, see if you see any resemblance to the second person. Simon of Perea. At the same time, following the death of Herod the Great, one of his servants called Simon of Perea was acclaimed as king largely because, according to Josephus, he was a commonly man, or he was a commonly people, or a comely people of a tall and robust body. He was crowned with the royal diadem and proceeded to burn and plunder a number of royal palaces. And then Herod's former commander Gratus gathered a body of men and reinforced by some Roman troops fought uh, a pitched battle against Simon's followers. And Simon himself fled, but was later beheaded. Right. So somebody called him a a Messiah, the same as the first one. They both rose up in extremely violent ways and started terrorizing the countryside and both ended up in death in some way, shape, or form. The third one, Judas the Galilean, very similar. Once the insurrections were put down, these ones that were before, uh, Herod's territory was divided between his sons who ruled on the Romans' behalf as client kings. Basically, that meant somebody who was like a puppet state of Rome. And so one of, his, one of the Tetrarchs proved particularly ineffective as a ruler. And in 86, he was deposed of and Judea was placed under direct Roman rule. At that time, a Galilean named Judas and a Pharisee, if you need a kid's name coming up, remember this one called Zadok, it's a great name, uh, stirred up the people in reaction to this and began a revolt which was savagely repressed by a guy named Varus, who Josephus says crucified 2,000 people by the time his campaign was over. So you see the trend of what happens when somebody claims somebody else to be a Messiah, right? Somebody claims to be a Messiah, people follow them. There's a violent uprising, hoping that there would be conquest, hoping that there would be freedom. And then they all end up dead in some way, shape or form. And so Peter, in claiming somebody is a Messiah is kind of taking his life into his own hands and saying, hey, whatever happens next, I'm all for. It may end up with me being dead, but hey, let's let's go for it because what I've seen of Jesus is worth me saying this. Except the sort of Messiah that that Peter was saying yes to was different than all of the other ones. No time in Jesus' history had we seen him self-proclaimed to be the Messiah. Every single time it's somebody else saying it, him confirming it. No other time in Jesus' ministry, even before this point and afterwards, do we see him resort to any sort of violent act. In fact, all of the violence happens to him. The one time a violent act happens is by Peter when he cuts an ear off and Jesus heals it back to the man's head. The exact opposite of what you would think the Messiah would do. Most of Jewish history had wanted the Messiah to come and conquer. Their history had been enslavement after enslavement conquest after conquest, exile after exile, and they were hoping for somebody to come back and free them. If you were a person in that day and age, you would want somebody to come back who is a strong, powerful person. You wouldn't want them to look like this guy, like Jesus. You wouldn't want him to look like that, right? He doesn't look terrifying. He doesn't look strong. He doesn't look like the sort of person that's gonna overthrow the Roman government. You want somebody that's gonna look like this, like Leonidas, right? From the movie 300. Somebody that's gonna like take, na- or take prisoners, like d- do all of the crazy things that like Leonidas, the Spartan king does, right? Like that's what you would want this person to do. You would want them to seek vengeance, get payback, freedom, all of these sorts of things. But here's why this list of messiahs is important here's why Peter saying yes to Jesus as a different kind of Messiah and no to the military leader, Leonidas sort of person is a big deal. Here's why step number one on our partnership card sounds so basic and yet is so vitally important to why the church matters. Because who you say yes to determines your next steps. Who you say yes to, who you profess your life to determines your next steps. Take, for example, this guy, Dave Ramsey. Many of you are probably Dave Ramsey fans, right? You say yes to Dave Ramsey. You're saying yes to wanting to get debt free. You're wanting to say yes to budgeting your money better, right? You're saying yes to Dave Ramsey because you know that if you follow his way, you will most likely get debt free. Or if you say yes to these lovely people from Texas, Chip and Joanna Gaines, I know many of you have said yes to Chip and Joanna Gaines because if I walk into your house and see an open concept or shiplap, you've sold out to Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? You've said yes and you went through all of the steps to get to the shiplap kitchen of your dreams. That's not out of date yet. Uh, Or if you are a Lions fan, right, you've said yes to this guy, Dan Campbell, right? I don't know why we say yes to the Lions. Even if we do have a great coach, we're still gonna, no, we're gonna make the Super Bowl this year, right? It's gonna be great. We're gonna drink that Kool-Aid. If you say yes to Dan Campbell, you've said yes to drinking the Kool-Aid. That's what we'll go with. While these are easy and funny examples, right, we do all get the point, right, that who we say yes to in life or what we say yes to determines our next steps in life. Every year I go out to LA uh, for some doctoral work that I'm a part of, and I work with colleagues that are wrestling with this sort of question. We're wrestling with the question of how do we help students make sense of a world where everyone is asking them to say yes to them. Everywhere you turn on social media, someone is asking you to say yes to them in some way, shape or form and take next steps in their direction to buy their product, to live their certain way, to look the certain way. Whatever it is, how do we help students answer this question to say yes to Jesus and follow the next steps there? And it all boils down to kind of these three questions that we're wrestling with throughout my three years in this program. It's where do I belong? What is my identity? And what is my purpose? Every single person that we follow is trying to help us answer those questions that no matter what stage we are in our life, we're all asking these questions, especially when we are in high school. And these questions don't go away. Even if we say yes to Jesus, at some point in time, somebody else will be trying to get us to say yes to their way of life. And so when Peter declares to Je- that Jesus is the Messiah, when he says, uh, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, it's a really big deal because he is giving up what generations and generations of people before him had wanted for a military leader to come in, to do it a certain way. And he's saying, no, that's not the sort of kingdom that I'm professing to. There's one really powerful word that we haven't gotten to yet in this story. And it starts in verse 18. I want you to pay attention to this word that Jesus says about what Peter says to him. So Jesus replied, starting in verse 17 again, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then this really important word, and. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This word and is such an incredibly powerful word because anytime you say yes to something, there's always an and associated with it. And and is a really powerful conjunction. A little grammar lesson for us. And is a conjunction. It combines two thoughts, right? It's the extenuation of, of one thought into another. Some of you may have remembered learning it in elementary school, for and nor but or yet so or more better known as fanboys, right? Uh, Not to be mixed up with all the Chiefs fans that have become Taylor Swift fans. Those are fan bros, not fanboys, okay? Gotta get that correct. Anyways, back to the word and. Uh, And is one of those few conjunction words that connect two thoughts. The author Matthew uses this word here to say, and I tell you that you are Peter. He wants to connect Peter saying yes to Jesus to what's gonna come next, the next steps that Jesus is gonna ask him to partake in. Now, there's probably a double meaning to the word rock in this passage. Peter's name obviously means rock. So Peter, Jesus could be saying that Peter is the rock, right? There's also a future foretaste of what's gonna come. There's actually a church that's gonna be built there sometime in the future that the church will actually be built uh, on this rock. But I think there's a third implication to this passage that's extremely applicable to us today. Think again about the place that Jesus has taken his disciples. It was a place filled with chaos, all of these crazy things happening. It was a place that the Jewish people adamantly avoided because it was a place seen that would make them unclean, a place of brokenness, a place of detestable things. It was a place situated at what the ancients called the gates of Hades. It was hell on earth in many ways. And to to use the Jesus word for the morning, Like Jesus, this is the place that he called his disciples to be intentionally. He didn't avoid it. He didn't go around it. He didn't find a different route to take to avoid it altogether. He went there and he stopped. And so here's where I wanna turn it towards us this morning. As we read these scriptures, this isn't the only time that Jesus goes to places. This is like the prime example of all of the terrible things that were happening in the world around Jesus at that day and age. But this wasn't the only time that Jesus enters into people's pain, or into their sorrow, into their hurt, or their places of discomfort with him and his disciples. If you go back and read through the gospels time and time again, these spaces are the places where Jesus shows up over and over and over again. He shows up in the places where there is hell on earth for so many people whether they're major or minor ones, whether they're, whether they're life-changing or they're minute, whatever it is for whoever that person was, this is the most important thing happening and Jesus enters into those moments. And so why do we believe that next steps are so important? Why do we believe saying yes to Jesus is always followed by important next steps? Because it's what we see Jesus do, stepping into places of discomfort. And we believe that Jesus calls us into places of people's discomfort. Even if it's signing up for kids ministry, even if it's signing up for youth ministry or serving coffee, wherever it is, everything is entering into people's discomfort. Through the conversations we have, we learn so much about people's lives. And so saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to taking next steps. And so here's what I want to do to end this morning. I want to make this super practical uh, because I know what I'm going to do when I go home today, Uh, like I do most Sundays. I'm gonna go home and take a nap and then I'm gonna go home. Unfortunately, the Lions aren't playing today. They'll play tomorrow, but I'll probably watch more football than I should. And I won't think about the message anymore, probably after I leave this place. It's usually what I do unless we have a conversation about it through the week. But here's what I wanna do. I wanna spend some time thinking about what your possible next step could be before you leave this morning. Uh, and so I'm going to invite the band to come up uh, in this moment, and you guys can still participate in this once you're up here, but I'm going to set the stage for what we're going to do. It's going to be a little weird. We're going to get a little practical, a little uh, spiritual discipline this morning, uh, but here's what I want to do. I want everybody to just close their eyes for a moment. Just close your eyes. We're going to partake, partake in something called imaginative prayer. So what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath in, and then let it out. Take one more, and then let it out. And then take maybe the deepest breath you've taken in a week or maybe even a month. Just take it in, and then just let it out. Find a comfortable way to sit. Imagine in front of you now that there is a table and across from the table, there's an empty chair that Jesus comes and sits in and he wants to have a conversation with you. The first thing that he wants to have a conversation with is about the good things that have happened in this past week. So for the next couple seconds, just give over to Jesus those things that have happened that you're really grateful for, the good things that have happened in your life. And after you've told him those things, he also asks you about what are the hard things that are happening in life? What are the things that maybe you haven't told anybody else? You may not even have told Jesus, but these are the things that are going on in my life, and you just need to give them over to Jesus. In that same breath, he looks at you and says, you've said yes to me, and I have some next steps for you. And so as you think about your week, as you think about the places that you hang out in, that you work, that you go to school, your house, wherever your neighborhood, wherever it is, where are the places of discomfort or somebody going through something that Jesus is laying on your heart to ask you to step into? Where is he saying you're uniquely equipped to step into this person's life or this ministry or wherever it is that only you can do because you have a unique understanding of that situation? Then he looks at you and he says, go and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, would you pray with me as we end? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your story um, of Peter and the disciples following you into a place that made them uncomfortable. Uh, We thank you for the story of them saying yes. when they could have said yes to many different things. And we're grateful for them saying yes to you and the next steps that come with it. You called them to go to beautiful places, hard places, all the places in between, and you're calling us to do the same. So would you show us where our next steps are? Would you show us who those next steps are towards or what ministry those next steps are into? God, we want to be your people. We've said yes to you for a reason, and even though those next steps may be scary, Remind us that you are with us even to the end of the age and you will follow us into those things as you did your disciples in so many ways. Jesus, we love you and we'll talk to you soon. Amen.
0: As always, we hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.